going on and what we're doing in Egypt. So we're in the fourth week of our series, Who's Your Neighbor? And I just, most of you guys know this, but I thought I'd go ahead and say it so that we're all on the same page. Um, in case you aren't aware, I'm not a native Zionsvillian, okay? Um, I think that's what you might call yourselves. I'm not a native Zionsvillian. I'm, I actually live in, I'm, I'm in Westfield, so I'm a Westfieldian. Any other Westfieldians in the room? Hey, all right. I was beginning to feel a little lonely because I was looking at the board out there, and now there's only a few pens around me. So, um, but I'm not a native Zionsville. I'm actually not even a native Hoosier. Um, I'm, I'm from Kentucky originally, uh, which I'm sure you're aware. And, um, uh, but I've lived here for about 10 years now, and I know you guys have welcomed me so, so kindly. So I consider myself a, a Hoosier uh, once removed. Thank you so much. Um, but it's interesting. I hear you, you Zionsvillians talk about Westfield, and, and it's as if... It's as if Westfield is extremely far away. I've heard some of you guys talk, and it seems like you might need a passport to travel to Westfield. I assure you that's not the case. But even though we might not be uh, in close physical proximity, I think there are things that we could probably agree on when it comes to neighboring, which is what we've been talking about, right? And one of those things is that neighboring is tough. It's not, it's not super easy. And one of the reasons it's not super easy, one of the reasons it's tough, is because neighbors can be weird, I think you might agree. We all have that weird neighbor. And if you're thinking, well, I don't have a weird neighbor, well, you might be that weird neighbor. <laughs> and so as I was thinking about weird neighbors, uh, I remembered a, uh, a bit on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. And in the bit, he reads hashtags from Twitter. Now, if you don't know what a hashtag is and you don't know what Twitter is, you would be totally fine. You're going to be able to keep up. And so I remembered that, and so I went on Twitter, and I searched my weird neighbor. And so what you're about to see are actual uh, uh, postings from people that have had strange encounters with their weird neighbors, okay? So here we go. Here's the first one. I sing in my apartment all the time, and occasionally I hear my neighbor singing along with me. (laughs) My weird neighbor. Next one. My neighbor alternates between carrying a samurai sword and a baseball bat, while walking his dog. I'm terrified to say hello. (laughs) Hashtag my weird neighbor. Here we go. Mr. Upstairs seems to be dropping boxes of power tools and scooting heavy wooden objects around. It's like a lullaby, really. (laughs) I love that, that they call him Mr. Upstairs. Next, I was outside earlier and sneezed. One of my neighbors yelled, you should get that checked out. (laughs) My weird neighbor. One more. My neighbor used to steal my paper read it, and then knock on my door to distract me while his wife put the paper back. <laughs> Hashtag my weird neighbor. We all have that, that weird neighbor. I'll add my very own weird neighbor story. My brother and I, when we were kids, we'd often play baseball out in the backyard. And of course, every now and then, the ball got hit over the fence into the neighbor's yard. And we didn't have a chain link fence. We had, you know, the six-foot privacy fence. And so if the ball went over there, we didn't see where the ball was, and we didn't see our neighbor. And so... My brother and I would begin to fight because one of us would have to take the walk of shame over to the neighbor's house, right, and knock on the door and, and confess to what had happened and ask for our ball back. And so on one occasion when this has happened, we hit the ball over the fence and we began to bicker back and forth about who was going to take the walk over to the neighbor's house. The ball came sailing back over the fence. And at first we were pretty excited about that because we thought, this has never happened before. Maybe from now on when we hit the ball over, the neighbor will just be kind enough to throw it back over and help us out. And so we picked up the ball and we started playing, but we noticed that the ball had something written on it. And the ball ball said, if it comes over again, it's mine. That happened. Weird neighbor. 
Um, well, we're continuing on in our series, and this is week four. And in week one, Jerry kind of set us up. And then the past couple weeks, we've been looking at obstacles. Remember, we looked at fear. And we talked about what it would look like if we were able to cast aside our fear and what kingdom possibilities there could be if we were able to do that. And last week, we talked about time. And we thought about our hurried world. This world that we continue to fill and fill and fill with more and more and more. And it keeps us from seeing these moments with our neighbors, literally and figuratively. We're not fully present. And what would it look like if we were? What would it look like if we were fully present? What kingdom moments would present themselves? And so as we thought through what today, the topic for today might be, we thought, what other ways could we make you guys feel guilty for being the kind of neighbor that you are? And so we thought about one more thing, and actually Jerry thought of this, so if you don't like it, you can take it up with him. But we, we're going to look at motives. Okay, so we, we talked about fear being an obstacle time. And today we're going to talk about motives, our motives for loving our neighbor. And so we're going to look at our text this morning, which is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Um, but before we read that, we're going to look at this theme verse uh, that we've continued throughout the series, which is Mark 12. Um, and so we'll read Mark 12, and then we'll read through 1 Thessalonians. Mark 12, verses 29 to 31. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. You yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully mistreated at Philippi, as you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in spite of great opposition. For our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure motives or trickery, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so we speak not to please mortals, but to please God who tests our hearts. As you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or with a pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you have become very dear to us. And so Paul, in his letter to the church in Thessalonica, was dealing with something in particular, and that was motives. A lot of these towns at this time in the first century were having to put up with what, what the New Testament calls false teachers. And so people would come into town, and they would hear false teaching, or something would be required of them. And so th the church in Thessalonica, much like most of the other first century churches, had become weary of this. They had become weary of people coming in with a motive, with, with the intent to manipulate them or to get something from them. And so that's what Paul is addressing. Paul's telling the church that he's not trying to deceive them, that he's not trying to trick them. There isn't an agenda or an ulterior motive. He loves them, quote, so deeply that he doesn't only want to share the gospel, but he wants to share his life, himself, with them. And I think this is so true for us today. 
We're so jaded and so cynical because of the agendas and the ads and the commercials and the sales pitches. Think about what time of year we're in. We're in this season of political uh, posturing, right? And so we've put up with all these agendas and ads and commercials. And marketing is so prevalent in our culture that we've learned to simply put up barriers, right? We've learned to put up barriers, and and rightfully so. Most of us, let's, for a second, most of us, what what do we do when we open our mail and we find a letter that says, you've won an amazing free gift? What do we do with that? We throw it in the trash, right? Because we know they just want something from us. They want us to buy something that we didn't even want in the first place. Most of us, what do we do when we get that email from our Nigerian friend who has $24 million in a European bank? And if we just help him get it out, he'd give us 10%. What do we do with that email? Delete. If you haven't hit delete on that email, you should. Okay? Now, I'd be willing to bet that most of us, what do you do when the doorbell rings and you look out the peephole of your front door or you, or you peek through the blinds? And you see a pair of white short sleeve shirts and black pants and black ties. The Mormon missionaries are out and they're on your front porch. And you begin to run around the house and you tell your kids to be quiet. (laughs) And you look for the remote and you turn the TV down and you steer clear of the windows because you want them to think that you're not home, right? And to pass you and go on to the next house. Because we're weary of agendas and ads and motives we're so inundated with commercials and marketing and somebody trying to pitch us something that we've learned to put up these barriers. And we see past the commercials, though. We see past the ads and we see past the spiel and we see the motive behind them. And the motive all along was to get us to do something. And we don't like it when people tell us what we should and shouldn't do, right? And so as I talk through that, I think, what does that have to do with neighboring, which is what we've been talking about? What does all that have to do with neighboring? Well, I think first and foremost, we have to understand that in our attempt to neighbor well, which is what this is all about, in our attempt to neighbor well, both our figurative and our literal neighbor, like I said, our motives for doing so are important. And I wouldn't say they're just important, they're crucial. The reason I say that is because our culture is so inundated with it, we've become experts in marketing, right? We can smell when we're trying to be manipulated. And so our motives are extremely important. And in the book, The Art of Neighboring, which we've kind of been using as a, as a guide for our series, the authors talk about this. And I think it's important for us as Christ followers, and it's important for us as neighbors to hear some of the things that they, they mention. And one of the things is this. They say, neighboring is not an evangelism strategy. If evangelism is your only motive, then you won't be a very good neighbor. Neighboring is not an evangelism strategy. If evangelism is your only motive, then you won't be a very good neighbor. And then they go on to say this. We don't love our neighbors to convert them. Hear that. We don't love our neighbors to convert them. We are converted, and because of that, we love our neighbors. Now, I have to be honest. This is a bit of a tightrope to walk when we talk through this. Because I have friends of mine that would completely disagree with that statement. That would wrestle with that. And I also have friends of mine who are on the other extreme and who never talk about Jesus in conversation, ever. And so it's a little bit of a tightrope to walk. I have a good friend that I've known for years, and he's a master at working Jesus into conversation. 
He's a master at working Jesus into every conversation. At first, you're talking about the Cubs, and then you start talking about no hitters, right? And before you know it, he's signed you up to work and serve at the coffee and donut bar, and you're in a home group, and you've never even been in church before. He's a master at it. And I know that he would wrestle with that statement. He would wrestle with the idea that we don't love our neighbors to convert them. We are converted, and because of that, we love our neighbors. But on the flip side, I have friends who never speak of Jesus in conversation. Whether it's out of what we, some of the things we've talked about, whether it's out of fear or out of time or out of uh, you know, not wanting to come across as pushy or having a motive, they never mention him. And so it's a little bit of a, a tightrope. And so for those of you who relate to my first friend, for those of you who, 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 who relate to my friend who can masterfully evangelize at any moment and every moment, hear me. None of these motives are bad in and of themselves. We believe that making a decision to enter into a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, is the most important decision anyone can make. Amen? Yes. Our hope and our prayer and our dream and our desire is that every person comes to a relationship with Jesus. That said, it shouldn't be our ulterior motive in, in building relationship. Our motive should be to love them, period. In the book, the authors also talk about ulterior motives versus what they call the ultimate motive. They say ulterior motives... Uh, 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 ulterior means to, to conceal something, to keep something hidden, which means in a conversation we might say something, but we might intend or mean something underneath that, right? It's ulterior. We have an ulterior motive. Now, they also say in the book that the, the flip side of that is the ultimate motive, which is the furthest point in a journey. And some of the examples they give it might be like if you're going off to college and one day you want to be a physician and you're striving for that goal, or if your son is just learning how to play basketball and he has dreams of one day playing in the NBA. It's the farthest point in this journey. Now, in the book, they put it this way, the ulterior motive in good neighboring must never be to share the gospel. Now, hear that. The ulterior motive in good neighboring must never be to share the gospel. But the ultimate motive is just that, to share the story of Jesus and the impact that that's had on our lives. If we love Jesus, it'll come out in our conversations. If we love Jesus, it'll come out in our neighboring we don't love our neighbors to convert them. We're converted, and because of that, we love our neighbors. Jerry's mentioned this, but back in the fall, we, we launched a, a pilot group that used this book, The Art of Neighboring, as kind of a, a platform, and they started to apply the, the practices and principles that are in the book. And so I, I asked Amanda and Doug Witter if they would share uh, about their experience in, in kind of putting these things into practice, their experience of neighboring, and in particular, their experience when it comes to motives and neighboring. So I want you guys to check this out. As a busy family with older kids and smaller kids and both of us working full-time, we kept wanting to get involved in Shepherd downtown or Wheeler Mission or go on a mission trip. And, and I still would love to do some of those things someday, but 
um, it, it was it was hard to find something that could fit for our family and um, so when we read this book and you really think about wow what if Jesus really did just literally mean love your neighbor <laughs> we wanted to be able to feel like we were having some activity in the kingdom and um, a lot of times it just wasn't conducive to you know we live over here church is way over there and all the meetings are over there and and it's just in our backyard, like Amanda said, it was easy to get involved with that and really kind of get our heads wrapped around that. I just think it's really neat that you, you don't know why God puts the people next to you or in your neighborhood that he does, but if we don't go out there and get to know them, we won't get to find out. And we already have um, formed very close friendships with a few of the neighbors right near us that we didn't even know a year or two ago. And it really did make it seem like it was something that me as a guy could do, because when you say go out and be a good neighbor, you know, you think of Mr. Rogers, no offense to Scott, but you, you, you think about Mr. Rogers going out there, and that's kind of what I would picture being a guy, oh great, I gotta go out there and pretend to be this person I'm not, and that's a really cool thing that I've, I've kind of picked up on, and you know, you probably think by now I know that, but you know, it's just kind of nice just to be able to be yourself, and it, it, it's not forced, it's not coerced, it's just, you know, it just kind of goes. read that in the book during the pilot that was really impactful for me um, because I think I often put so much pressure on myself not only with meeting new people like neighbors but even some of the people closest to me and some of my own family that what do I need to do today to convert them um, <laughs> what am I supposed to be showing to them as a follower of Jesus that's going to want them to do the same um, and so I just think sometimes when you feel all that pressure it just paralyzes you from doing anything and so reading that and being freed to really just focus on loving our neighbors um, I think put us into to action of doing that pretty pretty quickly I guess that statement for me too it really kind of um, released some past guilt because like I grew up in a culture where all you were supposed to do is just convert people don't get to know them, don't get to you know, do anything with them or anything. Just convert them and get that number and keep on going. And um, I think that just kind of almost just, for me, it kind of confirmed that, hey, my, my view of that was not really crazy. It was actually okay. And, and it made it much more easy to approach people where you know you're not just out there to be more of the head of the baseball bat and convert them. But it's like, hey, you know, I, I really want to get to know them. And that really was what I wanted to do. I wanted to get to know them. And then, you know, as, as we can find our ways to help them out, that's, you know, that's a great thing. But primarily get to know them first. Thanks to Amanda and Doug for doing that. Um, C.S. Lewis ha has a quote that's stuck with me for years, and it's, it, it's been something that I've tried to use when I try attempt to neighbor. C.S. Lewis says that there are no ordinary people. And that the best of the best when it comes to relationships, the best of the best when it comes to neighboring, is that there is no flippancy, no superiority, no presumption, no agenda. And so I started thinking, what if we're able to shed our motives? What if we were able to shed those layers of agenda that we often have? What if we were able to love our neighbors in the way that Jesus describes? Free of motive, free of agenda, full of grace, full of love. And so I started to try to think of what would that look like? And I couldn't help but imagine a family. And so imagine this family. 
And this family has had uh, an, an, an unemployment. And that unemployment was 18 months ago. And so this family started to pile up some bills. The bills have started to come in and they're not able to pay. And then they started to pile up. And they started having discussions about their house. And they've had, started having discussions with the bank and the word foreclosure has come up in conversation. And they have some medical bills. There was something in their past that they weren't able to, to keep up with. Something happened, they were hospitalized, and now they have all these medical bills. And the bills have started to pile up, pile up, and pile up. And then there's the credit cards. Because they weren't able to keep up, they've maxed out their credit cards, and they've acquired new credit cards to try to keep afloat. And so the bills just grow and grow and grow. And the mother and the father on this day have come back from meeting with the bank in hopes of an appeal, that they might get more time to be able to pay back some of these debts. And that appeal was denied. And so they're sitting at dinner with their children, and there's this ominous feeling, like maybe they might lose the house. And for the past six weeks, they've struggled with food. It used to be that they could just go to the pantry and they could open it up and pull out what food they needed. But now when they open the pantry, they're able to see the back wall of the pantry. It used to be full, but now they can see the back of it. And so food has become a struggle. It's become a conversation. And so the mother and father both go to the grocery now because when they go to the grocery, they have to have hard conversations like, should we get this food or should we get that food? Because this food will save us 50 cents. This food might save us a dollar. Difficult, uncomfortable conversations. And this is where this family has found themselves. And so they're in unfamiliar, they're in uncomfortable territory. And the kids know it. They've heard the whispers and the discussions and conversations behind closed doors. And they know that dad is wrestling with what it feels like to not be able to, being able to provide for his family. And the mom is, is wrestling with what it, it is to not being able to protect and care for her family. And the kids see it. They know it. And so this is where the families found themselves at dinner in a deep sense of, of what do we do? What next? And so at that moment when it's heavy and it's hard and it's bleak, all of a sudden the neighbor bursts in through the door. You know the neighbor who doesn't knock. Do you have one of those? I do have one of those. She's seven years old. Now she comes, she comes, she comes to, to play with my daughter Emma, but she doesn't knock. She just bursts through the door. We have that neighbor who doesn't knock. And so the neighbor bursts through the door and sits down at the kitchen table and says, no, no, this isn't good enough and puts a bag of groceries right in the middle of the table. He says, you've you got to be able to eat better than this. And the neighbor says, I know I've been watching. I see you come and go. I know that you're having struggles. And so I know. I know what's going on. And so I want you to have this. It's a gift card to the local grocery store. So when you run out of groceries, go to the grocery store. Get what you need. And when you go back the next month, that card will be full again. It's taken care of. It's taken care of for the next five years. If you need 10, let them know. It'll take care of it. And so the neighbor continues and says, what do you guys owe? I know the kids are here and it's an uncomfortable conversation, but what do you owe? And the dad says, well, what do you mean? What do you owe in the house? 
Well, in order to keep the house. No, 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 not in order to keep the house. What do you owe on the house? And the father says, well, we owe this amount. Okay. What about, what about the bills? I know you were in the hospital for a period of time. What about the bills? How, how much do you owe? How much? Give me a number. Well, I mean, if you add them all up, I mean, just give me the number. How much? What about the credit cards? Tell me about the credit cards. How big is the bill? What do you owe? Well, we owe this and we owe that. No, t- tell me everything. I, you probably, I know you have more cards than that. Yeah, you're right. We do have more cards. Here's what the number really is. And so the neighbor takes out his checkbook and says, well, if I did my numbers right, would this cover it? And the dad says, well, yeah, it would cover but you can't. No, no, no. Would this cover it? Would this be enough? Well, yeah, but we can't. Would this be enough? Yes. Well, what if I add another zero to that number on the check? Would that give you enough cushion? Would that be good enough? Yeah. And so he plops the check on the table and says, have a nice dinner, and walks out. I can't help but think that this is a picture of the kingdom. This is a melding of heaven and earth. This is the your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is loving our neighbor. Now, obviously, we individually might not be able to have the means to be able to do that for our neighbor, but I'd be willing to bet that us as a church collectively could do things like that to promote and push forward the kingdom. It's a picture of on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus' life, death, and resurrection creates a new reality for us if we choose to live into that. A reality that tomorrow doesn't have to look like today. A reality that says light wins over dark, that love is more powerful than death. And as Jesus tells us, we'll do even greater things than he did. Jesus didn't come to sell us the kingdom. He came to give it away. And that's worth remembering this morning, worth celebrating, and worth being reminded of. It's the life and death and resurrection of Jesus that we're reminded of when we come to this table. It's the love of Christ for his neighbor, the love of Christ for me and for you, that allows us the privilege. Amen.